Welcome to Your Life Choices podcast with me, John Deeks, and our mission here is to deliver up-to-date, independent, authoritative information and essential resources. And you're very welcome. And just recently, you might recall, we have interviewed Noni Hazelhurst and her fabulous new film, June Again, starring some fabulous Australian actors, Stephen Curry, Claudia Carvan and others. It deals with a woman experiencing a medical miracle. She was in a state of dementia. And then in a bout of lucidity from the dementia, June has precious little time to bring together her estranged children, saving the family business and, and more in a limited time because she slips back into the dementia state. And that made me think I would love to speak to somebody who is high up in the world of dementia and uh, other areas of, uh, of mental research. And the name that came up first up was Professor Karen Anstey, who is a laureate fellow, a professor at the University of New South Wales, senior principal research scientist at NURA. She's also a director of the University of New South Wales Aging Futures Institute. She also chairs the International Research Network on Dementia Prevention and is a member of the Governance Committee of the Global Council on Brain Health. Ah, Karen, that was only part of it. I could have gone on for ages. Welcome to you, Professor Karen Anstey. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. You certainly have uh, spent a lot of time hitting the books and doing a lot of research. Um, We do appreciate you giving up your time, along with uh, a movie called The Father with uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins and this movie that's just come out, June Again. There's so much more awareness of dementia, and I thought this would be a perfect time to have you on the phone to talk about some of the latest research into dementia. First up, let's start with what dementia is. Explain more about it, please. Okay, so dementia is actually an umbrella term for a number of conditions that involve progressive uh, neurodegeneration and cognitive decline. The most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, and that causes about 65% of the cases of dementia in Australia. And the second most common cause is vascular disease, small strokes and transient ischemic attacks that cause brain damage and eventually lead to what we call vascular dementia. And then there's a number of other causes of dementia that are less common. There's something called frontotemporal dementia that affects language first. And then there's some of those younger onset dementias, which are quite rare, but have a stronger genetic determinant. The key thing about dementia is we don't have a cure. So it's not like a lot of the other conditions, you know, that are treatable or you can stabilize with medication. At the moment, there's a few medications that may treat symptoms in the early stages, but there's no cure. So they do progress all of the dementias. Karen, can you catch it? Is it inherited? Is it, uh, how does one get dementia? Uh, Has that been determined yet? (laughs) Um, well, there's lots and lots of scientists working on it. Mm-hmm. So, no, you can't catch dementia. It's caused by the accumulation of neuropathology in your brain, and there's different sorts of neuropathology. So, Alzheimer's disease has a very specific type of neuropathology. The vascular dementia is caused by those small strokes and changes due to vascular disease. Um, and then there's other types of neuropathology. And what happens is 
that these accumulate actually quite slowly. So we know with Alzheimer's disease that it actually starts to accumulate about 30 years before people oh. are showing symptoms of Alzheimer's. So it's a very slow process. Wow. Yeah, and most dementias actually occur in quite late life. So most people with dementia are in their 80s. Um, you know, there's some a few in their 70s and 60s, but it's really a disease of, of very old people and the course is actually very slow. And that's why my area of research is really looking at what we can do to um, reduce the risk or modify that trajectory because there is a long period of time that this is accumulating. Is it, uh, sorry, I'm just wondering, is there any lifestyle, um, uh, am I doing something in my life that could uh, help me prevent it? Uh, should I exercise more? I mean, obviously that's going to give, uh, be better in a lot of ways, but is, is, is it lifestyle related as well? Yes, it is. And that's really one of the interesting things that we've learned over the last, say, 20 years. So, you know, when I started in this field, uh, we assumed that there was just nothing that you could do to modify your risk of dementia. And it was thought to be, say, completely a genetic condition. We know that there are some genetic risk factors, particularly for Alzheimer's disease. But there is actually quite a lot that you can do to modify your risk, even if you have those genetic risk factors. So, Such as? What we know is it, it basically comes back to the old healthy lifestyle. So if you think it's it, about just general health, heart health, physical health, it, well, it's the same for your brain. So brain health is important. And the key things to do are to not smoke. So if you're smoking, give up because that increases your risk of stroke and dementia. Again, closing up all those um, blood vessels. and Yes, I mean, smoking, it hasn't got much going for it. And you know, now dementia is just another one of those you know, bad outcomes that, it, that you're at risk of if you smoke. So, mm. But also, yeah, physical activity is protective. So what we've found in, in some research I've done and many others is that if you uh, have uh, physically active, the level that's recommended is 150 minutes a week of moderate physical activity. Yep. That will reduce your risk of dementia by about 30%. Wow. Yeah. So physical activity, because it, it affects all the other risk factors. So like it helps you manage your blood pressure, your, your weight, your cholesterol, uh, reduces the risk of the vascular changes in your brain. So physical activity is protective. A healthy diet is protective. Mm -hmm. So we know increasingly, um, you know, the Mediterranean-style diet. Sure. Uh, it's good for your heart. And delicious. And delicious. <laughs> and what we found out is there's actually even, we can tweak that diet to make it even more protective. There's something called the MIND diet, which is actually a version of the Mediterranean diet, but it emphasizes the neuroprotective food. So blueberries are mm. specifically neuroprotective, Green leafy vegetables every day, um, so salad is very um, neuroprotective, fish once or more a week, and nuts. All of these things have um, an added benefit. I'm hearing a lot of antioxidants coming in there. Yes. Yeah. yes. I noticed that uh, in, in part of my research that in 2018, dementia uh, was estimated to, to cost around $15 billion. It's cost Australia. And by 2025, the total cost of dementia is predicted to rise to more than $18.7 billion. Now, how much research money is going towards research in Australia to finding a, dare I say, a cure for dementia? I don't have the stats with me on 
the amount per cure, but it's not not nearly enough is all I can say. Well, when you look at the cost-benefit ratio here, yeah. Karen, I'm thinking, hey, you know, yeah. $18.7 billion by 2025, uh, gosh, um, you know. It's... Look, yes, I mean, look, the Australian government put $200 million into dementia research. I don't know if you remember, but it was about um, six years ago. And that's finished. That's been spent. It's established a lot of very, um, you know, productive research. But we need more. It's a massive problem because the population is ageing. Sure. And so more and more people are moving into those age ranges where they will develop dementia. And look, what people don't actually realise is that in addition to dementia, there's cognitive impairment, which is, is sort of milder. And you don't actually get a dementia diagnosis, but it's called mild cognitive impairment. Mm. And one in five adults aged over 70 has that, in addition to the dementia. So the preventive stuff, it helps that as well. It helps all of it. It sounds to me like uh, looking for a, in inverted commas, a cure for cancer. Well, yeah, that's fine, but have a look how many cancers there are. So you have to break them yeah. down. Uh, you are the chair of the International Research Network and Dimension Prevention and a member of the Governance Committee. Where are we when it comes to the research so far? Is there any good news on the horizon? Look, there is good news coming out all the time. There has been some promise with some of the pharmaceutical trials. That's not my area of expertise. I'm more on the lifestyle risk reduction side. So in the preventive health area, we are seeing some benefits of the risk reduction trials. But the trials that seem to be most effective are those where the people in the trial who receive the active intervention are doing multiple things. So they're having their blood pressure managed properly. They're having their vascular risk factors managed plus they're undertaking physical activity, improving their diet and doing some cognitive training. So it seems you, that you've got to hit everything at once. You've got to look, approach this holistically and do everything you can to protect your brain and promote brain health. We see smaller effects with individual studies if we just look at physical activity. But, you know, we'd say you've only got one chance. You've got to give it everything. Wow. Uh, yeah. I know that using um, things such as uh, even Candy Crush or, or doing the, the, the crossword puzzle, whatever, there's a lot of mind games that are very good for the brain, correct? Yes. Look, there's all sorts of ways you can keep your mind active. What you have to remember, though, is if you become really good at cryptic crosswords, you know, there's some people that can do get it out in about 10 minutes in the morning. Mm. It's good. It's much better than doing nothing and it is stimulating, but for you personally, you probably would benefit more from doing something that you find more difficult. So learning a language or doing a different sort of crossword that you find really hard. So we need to challenge our brain. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Keep yeah. learning, you know, this lifelong learning, staying stimulated, engaging in your community, solving problems, social problems as well as, you know, academic sort of problems. Anything like that where you stay engaged and stimulated is going to be beneficial. Terribly important. And of course, uh, if, you're, if you're at all able to participate in music, and it doesn't matter if you've never touched the keyboard on a piano, but I know that music is a, is a great boon to the young ones, to yep. the kids in school, and it's got to work the, the other end as well. Look, music's a really fascinating one. What we find with is some people with dementia who've lost their memory, um, and some of them have even lost a lot of speech, can remember music and can still play an instrument and can still sing even. So musical memory seems to be quite different. The other area of music is that it's neurostimulating. So we can see on brain scans that 
where the brain lights up when people are hearing and responding to music. Music is also used as a therapy mm. in um, some diseases like Parkinson's disease that helps people with their gait. So it's sort of an untapped resource and researchers are starting to look into music now. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, I am turning 70 next uh, Saturday. You're welcome. Anything in gold. Right. Uh, but, uh, Karen, I was wondering, is there – I mean, I go to my doctor and I get all my tests and I, you know, this and that and, and everything else. Are there any tests for me or any signs that I can take to the doctor to say, look, a- am I a candidate for dementia? So there's two ways of looking at what you've asked. One is, do I have any risk factors I could modify? Uh-huh. And we yep. could test you on that. We could say, look at your physical activity, your cognitive engagement, your... How much you know, you're your drinking? <laughs> How much you're drinking. We could look at all of that. We know the safe level okay. of drinking for brain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be one way. And then the other way is, are you experiencing any memory problems that might indicate that there's some changes that um, mean that you're at increased risk? So... What happens is often people notice themselves that their memory has declined. They start to become worried even before we can attest it on an actual objective measure. And so when we start to see some of those changes, that would be a red flag that there could be a risk. It doesn't necessarily mean that a person will develop dementia, but it certainly means that you'd, you'd want to get an assessment and then check all your risk factors to make sure that you're doing absolutely everything you can to look after your brain. If you were told that 250 people in Australia every day were being diagnosed with dementia, I'm sure that people would be shocked, but that currently is one of the statistics. 250 people are joining the population with dementia every day yep. and new cases will increase to... They say 318 per day by 2025. Now, that's that's a jump. Why would it be? And by uh, 2056, they expect more than 650. Why the increase? Look, it's just to do with population ageing. So the fact oh. is we have an ageing population. People are living longer. We're not more likely to get dementia now than we were before at the same age, but we have a lot more people living to those ages. Yeah, sure. And they're also not dying of, cancer or heart disease because we've got so good at treating those other things. So what's happened is neurodegeneration is, in a sense, the new frontier of medical research. We haven't worked out how to treat any of the major neurological or prevent the neurological conditions, and they include some of the sensory things like macular degeneration. So that's the problem. We're living too long, sort of living beyond where we can treat things so you're going to then enter into the age where dementia is the biggest problem, say in the 80s. Now, before I let you go, I know that you have another focus and that is on the older driver risk assessment and safety. Yes. Because you're not not working hard enough as it is, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) You need something else in your life. (laughs) So tell me about the older driver risk assessment and safety. Look, we developed a risk tool because we actually don't really believe in age-based testing. So we what we think that you should assess people's function and we've done a lot of research. So we know that there's normal changes like in vision and sensory function and reaction time with ageing. So we've sort of worked out how to assess those to work out who is at increased risk of having a crash mm-hmm. and we've developed objective assessment tools that do that. We have also feel that there should be a lot more emphasis on intervention to improve older driver skill, 
people might have gotten their their license at sixteen in the paddock. You know, often when you talk to people, sure. you find out what, what you sure. know what it used to be like. Yeah. And they don't really have any refreshers or training. And then sort of at 80, someone says, oh, you're not a very safe driver. And this hasn't been much of an attempt to see driving as a skill that needs to be maintained like any other skill. Yeah. So we're developing. Professional development. Exactly. (laughs) And so we've done one study that's published that was um, effective showing that some two tailored driving lessons given to people uh, was able to improve their safety and we moved the number of people from unsafe to safe drivers by targeting specific bad habits they developed or skills where they you know weren't weren't managing their car properly so a lot of our research is, is around that in the driving area what about the the children of parents who say mum you shouldn't be driving you're a dangerous dad you shouldn't be on the road <laughs> Well, sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. So, again, it comes back, to, in our view, to an objective assessment is needed. We're talking to GPs. I mean, look, GPs don't have a tool. They, they have a form, a medical form that they complete for an older driver, but it's not based on an objective assessment of skill. So we've developed an assessment that we would like to get out to GPs that they could use and we think that this all should be based on, you know, a scientific evidence base, not on people having to make a judgment, particularly a GP who's got that relationship with their patients. Um, it's often quite difficult for them um, in that situation, and they don't necessarily have any evidence or knowledge of what the person's like on the road. I'm prepared to be corrected with this, but I'm sure that the statistics are that uh, drivers over the age of 60 are less likely to have an accident as opposed to those... Under 60. It's actually a curve. So the, the people with the highest stress risk are the very young mm-hmm. and also the very old. So it's over 85 is when the, the risk really goes up. And that middle age group is quite, is the safest. So it's at both ends. I mean, it's a heck of a thing for um, senior drivers to give up their, in inverted commas, their freedom. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it's a tough call for the kids to, to try and get mum or dad off the road if they can see it's a, a safety concern to themselves and also to the other drivers on the road. It is a really, really tough one. And that's one reason why we've, we've looked at all different ways of trying to develop um, objective measures. But the other thing is, we think it should be much more of a kind of life course conversation that people are thinking about their driving, um, when they're going to give up, about updating their skills. The whole area now, it's sort of just regulated through licensing. It's, there hasn't been enough support for people. And in some areas, there's no alternative transport. Yes. So if we want people to have that option of not driving. They have to have community transport. So sure. it, it's sort of... As with an ageing population, we really have to come to grips with this whole um, topic. Thank you for speaking on that because I know that's uh, one, of your, one of your many other hats as well and we, we do appreciate that. But before you do leave us, let's just uh, have some takeaway points. Look after yourselves with lifestyle. Yes. Make sure that uh, the foods you're eating are uh, the right foods. Keep your exercise up. If it's walking around the yes. block, whatever, keep your mental exercise up, yeah? Yes. Absolutely. And um, if you feel any any signs of uh, any issues, uh, go see your medical practitioner straight away. Um, and uh, there is hopefully going to be some help uh, on the horizon and uh, researchers around the world are working very hard to uh, yep. overcome the scourge. 
Karen, you've been an absolute joy to speak to, and I hope that uh, I can keep your number and sometime in the future we can we can speak again because it's it's most informative and it's great to hear from somebody who's at the forefront of research. Well, thank you. I'd be happy to speak again. Professor Karen Anstey, um, who, amongst many other things, chairs the International Search Network on Dementia and Prevention, right here on this episode of Your Life Choices. 